0: Ago. the podcast project of the funeralist, by Leopold Lombard. Today, fashion design, epidermalization of the public body, clothing and politics, with mini Today my guest is uh, Mimi Tin Nguyen, um, she's uh, an associate professor at, uh, in uh, gender women, women's studies and Asian-American studies at the uh, University of Illinois in Champaign, she's also the associate chair of the gender women's studies um, and she's also the editor of a great, great blog, uh, Threadbe- Threadbear with, um, with uh, Minha Pam. Um, and, uh, we're going to talk today about how, uh, clothing design, uh, involves a certain amount of cultural, social, and ideological narratives that is contained in each of the piece of clothes that we're wearing every day. Uh, hello Mimi. Hello. Uh, I'm very glad to have you on, uh, Thanks for having me. Sure. <laughs> great. Uh, I suppose uh, one of the first questions I can ask you is uh, maybe what what you're what you're interested uh, what your interest uh, is in right now. What is your field of research at this moment?
1: Um, I tend to I describe my research trajectory as being interested in all the things that are uh, uh, given to us as social goods, so like freedom or beauty or movement um, and uh, sovereignty, and then um, I'm interested in taking those things that are given to us as obvious, self-evident social goods, and then, um, looking at what they do beyond what, you know, their claim, they claim to do, right? So, um, so that's the premise of my, my, my book, The Gift of Freedom, and, you know, this idea that freedom is supposed to be this wonderful thing that, um, we should, uh, if we have it, we should give it to others, um. And it's the premise of my second project, which is looking at um, the promise of of beauty and and the, this idea that uh, in the midst of war and devastation and um, deprivation, that that beauty as a sign of life is is something that we um, should aspire to and 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 look towards. So,
0: and and that's something we will talk about a little bit later, and uh, including your book, The Gift of Freedom, that you just mentioned. Um, but maybe to start with the beginning uh, in this uh, problem that we would like to look at today, which is this relationship between basically clothing and politics. Um, uh, I suppose the very first axiom and, uh, of of uh, such research is that nothing that we're wearing could possibly be politic. Politically innocent, right? Yes, yes, yes. And that was very difficult for me to choose what to wear today. Knowing <laughs> that I meet you, in, in in the end, it's just as boring as it's as it is every day. So, well, uh, but any, anyway, maybe maybe we can start by evoking an article you wrote, and uh, I will I will obviously put on the website all those all the link towards those articles we will talk about today, but. One of them, one of them is great because it's very it's very um, uh, concise. But you basically start drawing this uh, theory of of, of uh, uh, closing and politics based on what what you should be wearing when you are teaching uh, in university. So you have mm-hmm. this, this article called "Teaching Brief Notes on the Unreliable Stories Closing Style." sorry. So what are what are those unreliable stories?
1: Um, it's, it's how I start off with um, my, I teach a class called the politics of fashion and it's how I start off the class is this idea of like, you know, we uh, put on clothes and there's nothing necessarily, um, um, innocent about any particular act of putting on clothes. So one of the first assignments I have my students do is, is write a reflection on like, why did you get dressed in the way that you did today? And if you think that there's no meaning to it, um, uh, why why you know, what do you think people think when they look at you right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so I, I want to start off I always start off that that class and um, uh, I often talk about m- myself um, and how you know you know how I have to perform being a professor um, and how um, you know, I mean, If you're a professor, if you're starting off um, in graduate school and and you're starting your, your job as a professor, there's, like, reams and reams of, like, online articles and advice columns about how to get dressed um as a as a professor and and they're often you know especially and they're especially gendered right mm. so the, it it's imagined to be less of a problem for male professors than for female bodied professors mm-hmm. to get to get dressed but so there's you know i remember when i was starting off like I, and I, this is a, i tell this to my students like there's a lot of like advice on how to look if you're young looking or like I am pretty young looking. Um if you're young looking or you're a small woman of color like I am, uh that you have to dress in a particular way to command authority in the classroom and it's about like dark colors and conservative colors and conservative clothes and you know uh heels and 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 all these kinds of ways in which those clothes uh are imagined to connote seriousness and authority and in an intellectual um uh um investment over sort of um you know you know the old uh, joke about academics being like living a life of the mind and not the body right mm-hmm. so um and that was always and so that was all advice that i that i didn't take <laughs> um so uh because it would have been um you know i i i, th- I think i would have looked really awkward in a in a dark suit um button-up shirt or pinstripe or whatever um Um, and it would have, you know, it would have been really obvious that I was uncomfortable in that. Um, but I, you know, so I, you know, I, you know, they look at my clothes, which are often very, I, 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 you know, when I first started off, I did want to dress, uh, in black on the first day, uh, in order to, um, seem at least somewhat authoritative. Uh, but over the years, um, I've actually given that up, uh, because, uh, uh, it's actually me as an authoritative teacher is actually an unreliable story because I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a disciplinarian in the classroom at all. Okay. Um, I'm very, you know, I, I will tell random stories about myself. I'm, I encourage my students all the time to, you know, t- challenge uh, you know, um, the things that are, that, that are expected of them even in the classroom and to think about, you know, what it is that, uh, you know, the college experience is supposed to be about. So, um, so I decided to give that up. But in that, in that piece that uh, you're referencing, I, I do talk about how I think I, I, my first day teaching outfit is very carefully thought out. And it, 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 this, I think I wrote this like when I was at the beginning of the tenure track and how I, yeah, I think I talk about wearing black and in order to look, Kind of like I'm in charge, but I've given that up since because it is an unreliable story. Um, so uh, you know, and I and I and I talk to them also about how you know I hear from other professors about um, you know like uh, critiques about the way that students dress, right? So like. Oh, you know, our students come to class in in sweatpants. It means that they're lazy or whatever. And and I invite them to, you know, engage me in in why that's an unreliable story about them, right? Mm-hmm. That that they're wearing sweatpants necessarily means that they're lazy or whatever. So um, so that's how I start getting them involved in in the classroom. So that's what I that's what I mean. And it's it's a it's a it's a starting with their sort of personal experience of, of um, being read a particular way um, with their clothes uh, by their clothes um, helps to unfold all the other things that uh, that follow in the in that class right mm-hmm. the questions about um, race and obviously gender and sexuality and religion and all the other stuff mm-hmm. so um, uh, so so you know it's 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 a it's a it's a process of getting them to recognize that you know, clothes act as indices for all kinds of things, um, but that they are unreliable, right? mm-hmm. that they are ide- ideologically informed indices. So.
0: Um, and they are unreliable, or may- maybe they have a degree of complexity that we quite don't get, I suppose, yes. because the, the sweatpants stories, uh, <laughs> the student who is wearing a sweatpant. Knows what is the cultural background of those sweatpants and knows that he or she will appear as, as being lazy, Mm -hmm. and probably is not as you say, or there's probably a complexity to it because this this there is uh there is what the person wants to say There's is per- what the society think of what it is and then there's the the interpretation of the individual of mm-hmm. what society would mm-hmm. think what it is so i, I think i think it's it's very interesting in how uh it it forms overall uh, uh, our public body mm-hmm. and um and uh and how there's things that are actually inherent to the, to the piece of clothing itself. Like, I mean, a, a design is as it is for a reason or another, but then there's an entire, an entire, uh, um, set of expectation mm-hmm. and, and cultural and social, uh, uh, uh prejudice or, or, uh, that, that might be linked to it. Um, and, um, you wrote you wrote a very very interesting uh, piece about uh, the hoodie uh, mm-hmm. in, in in this matter, and obviously related to to the tragic events uh, linked to the death of Trevon Martin mm-hmm. uh, this year, uh, last year, and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and the kind of h- historical social reading of what might be the expectation, uh, linked linked to. Uh, Either racist or social, socially charged uh, piece of clothing like the hoodie is. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I wrote. Uh, so, in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin getting shot by um, George Zimmerman, there were all these articles um, being published. Uh, once, once uh, you know, you know the, the the campaign to actually have Zimmerman arrested and. Uh, happened because he was not arrested by the Sanford, uh, Florida police at first, um, uh, and so then Trayvon Martin. When once the Trayvon Martin's murder became sort of an, a national or international story, uh, and um, bits and pieces of the uh, Zimmerman's uh, statement to the police leaked out, including this statement he made about, um, you know, he saw this hooded figure. Um, um, in his neighborhood he he imagined that he, that person must be trespassing um, um, uh, there were all these articles about like what the hoodie and like you know what is the hoodie what is its history what is it doing uh, what does it mean um, um, and so on and so forth and um, and then uh, we had you know these national you know cable news host talking about what the hoodie meant and Geraldo Rivera going on Fox News talking about how if you're uh, that parents of brown and black youth need to tell them you know not to wear the hoodie because it it, the hoodie signals um, uh, to to you know people in public um, you know that that this person is dangerous right? right and that they need to be stopped and um, and then, of course, then there were uh, sort of counter arguments um, about um, uh, where um, in sort of solidarity with Trayvon Martin, people put their hoods up, like took photographs of themselves with the hoodie in their hoodies with their hoodies up. Um, and, um, ask, you know, captioning these photographs that circulated all over social media, you know, am I next, uh, I am Trayvon Martin, um, do I look suspicious, and so on and so forth. So there was this fascinating moment, and then uh, at the same time there were other articles that were talking about how it doesn't, like the hoodie is just a distraction from the fact of... Um, Of anti-black racism uh, that uh, in in the United States. So there were like these. There was a spectrum of articles about the about the hoodie as a way to talk about race, as a way to not talk about race, um, as a way to you know what is it you know. So there's all this kind of interesting, fascinating um, discourse about the hoodie um, and its and its and its relationship to race. So I I really wanted to think about um, what it was then the hoodie is doing in that in mm-hmm. like why why are people attached to the hoodie um, as an explanation for um, uh, uh, Zimmerman's um, uh, murder of, of Martin um, uh, as a sort of rational explanation as some people imagined you know of course you would Imagine that somebody in a hoodie was a criminal, um, and then the idea that the talking about the hoodie was somehow a distraction from talking about race. When it seems very clear that a lot of the discussion about the hoodie was very racialized mm-hmm. and and attached to and criminalized and attached to a certain the certain body. And, and uh, maybe
0: it was which which is also uh, w- which also constitutes a paradigm of the way racism acts acts in our. Uh, modern era, let's say, because there is not a direct antagonism as there used to be. Now it's more uh, entangled within uh, as I was saying, a set of expectations. So mm-hmm. it's it's the Zimmer, Zimmerman case is a, what I call a preemptive legi- mm-hmm. legitimate defense, just like the Iraq War, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and this, this preemptive legitimate defense is nothing else than a, a narrative to an, an, an individual in the case of the mm-hmm. an individual narrative but also a, a collective narrative mm-hmm. of um of people who are convinced they're absolutely not racist but obviously yes. <laughs> they, they very much embody their embody their the the way racism acts uh uh in, in our era. And um and this uh this um I'm sorry. um, Preemptive, sorry. Mm -hmm. Preemptive legitimate defense is based very much on a set of Mm expectations that is finding its object on obviously the color of the skin, but also the way a person behaves and the way a person is dressed. Mm -hmm. So that's where that's where you you come in. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, one of the things that I'm definitely interested in is how clothing gets epidermalized. Mm. The, that's the term, yeah. um, I th- and I think it's, uh, it's how clothing
0: becomes another scheme Yes, how yeah. clothing
1: becomes another, uh, which you know, I mean, happens. You know, when we see, when we think about, you know, camouflage is also mm-hmm. another way in which that happens. Um, but definitely, um, um, and then you know, there's the example of, um, um, you know, have you heard about those um, fake uh, Afghan and Iraqi villages that mm-hmm. um, the military set up? And then they have, the, there was an article in New York Times about um, a, co- uh, a costume designer who works for a company that um, dresses the, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> that dresses the. The extras. Yeah, yeah. the extras. Um, and, and how he does all this research to, to, um, um, uh, you know, help soldiers identify which 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 clothed body is a might be a bad Arab and which one's might be a good one or whatever. Um, but um, no, so I, I think I think that um, definitely you know clothes definitely get epidermalized and then also become cover like a, an excuse right to to um, a, a way to get around the 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 question of race while also reiterating it, right? So Mm -hmm. to get around the question of racism while also reiterating it through the the epidermalization of clothing. And the the preemptive legitimate defense is absolutely um, a part of it, right? I mean, that's the premise of so much of... um, uh, violence against um, in the United States uh, uh, so much violence against black bodies and certainly after nine eleven uh, against uh, many brown bodies right so there's like this imagination of like you know in the aftermath of nine eleven in the United States and you know people were attacking Sikhs mm-hmm. who are wearing turbans and because the Sikh uh, a turban or like the hoodie on the, on a black male body is somehow imagined to be uh, um, a uh, Sign? A, a sign, um, an expectation that someone mm-hmm. is about to violate your sovereignty, right, mm-hmm. right. Which, um, which you're, you know. So you know, Zimmerman imagining that you know um, Trayvon was a stranger in his gated community, or like people imagining that the Sikh is a is a terrorist on mm-hmm. our soil, or whatever. Or, or, and you know, which then gives cover for you call that preemptive legitimate defense
0: mm. and it's interesting maybe to see how um, um
1: which is also the premise of stand your ground laws
0: yeah is, yeah yeah uh and and also we'll talk about the Arzina law low mm-hmm. very 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 soon but um what i wanted to say is that i forgot <laughs> uh oh yeah i'm sorry um uh it's interesting to see that th- these bodies that uh gathers a certain amount of those signs of expectation mm-hmm. um in the in the case of uh those uh, preempti- preemptive legitimate mm-hmm. defense uh which obviously is, a, is an oxymoron to show the absurdity of this way of thinking yes um uh um their their behavior is scrutated in such a way that literally and that's what it happened with driven martin mm-hmm. a, a gesture of a, a, w- the way the body moves becomes your condemnation to mm-hmm. death which mm-hmm. or or to yes. in 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 other cases to maybe getting getting mm-hmm. beaten up or or mm-hmm. arrested because mm-hmm. obviously that's something that is very involved with the police as well yeah. um and, and New York has a New York has an incredible record right now of people getting shot in the street for similar mm-hmm. for similar issues. Um, uh, but yeah, le- let's let's move let's move to this uh, Arizonello and the article you've wrote uh, you've wrote about it uh, where uh, <laughs> it's uh, sometimes it it would be funny if it was not tragic. But uh, there's this Republican uh, senator or congressman. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to find my notes here. Um, Chris Matthews um, is Chris Matthews. No, Chris Matthews is a is a journalist.
1: Yeah, he's the journalist yeah. who's interviewing him. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. No problem. So
0: Chris Chris Matthews think that uh, it's um, so. Le- I'm sorry. Let's 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 recall what the Arizona Arizona immigration law that was passed uh, two years ago. Uh, is about and um, in the United States, there's a certain amount of areas where that are called sanctuary cities. Where since the mid 80s, um, immigrants, the police is not authorized to ask for uh, th- their various papers that would show the legal status of an, an immigrant in within the country which is very different from that for from Europe where it's it's a huge issue as well. Uh and 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 how there's even like I mean I'm talking about France for example, the 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 first the first thing a cop says to somebody he suspects uh would be like your papers. Yes. And and it's like are you is your body legally situated in in this territory? Uh, and basically, the original law is is proposing something pretty similar, where the law enforcement is authorized to verify uh, that indeed any anybody, um, uh, and it's mostly targeted to the to the uh, to the Latino bodies, um, um, would would be in an illegal situation in in uh, in the country, and therefore anybody should be. Continuously carrying those kind of proof uh, with them, and and um, to go back to your article, you quote you quote this journalist who thinks that it's um, uh, who thinks that they they would not be uh, an, an ethnic aspect to this uh, to the way the police might ask for a, uh, for the papers of someone, but maybe it would be linked, and it'd be okay if it was linked to the way somebody dressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, this whole uh, this whole story?
1: Um, Well, you know, one of the things that they're trying to do when they pass these laws is argue that it's not racially based, which Mm -hmm. of course it very much is. Right. I mean, there's like all this hysteria about like um, Mexican uh, migrant workers, uh, migrants coming to the United States without um, documentation. Um so and Arizona is a border state so there's like a lot of anxiety there and it's a very right-wing state as well um where there's been a lot of vigilante um violence against Mexican migrants mm-hmm. but that um has a quasi uh that is uh you know that is that is out that is technically unlawful but is nonetheless um understood to be quasi law abiding, mm-hmm. right? So there's this imagination that they're, like, uh, you know, obeying, you know, greater federal laws mm-hmm. or whatever. And we should,
0: we should recall that, uh, if I remember correctly, maybe we should check those figures, but either, as of 2011, since the wall was set up between Mexico and uh, the United States, uh, I think something like 3,500 people got shot uh, by law enforcement mm-hmm. or complete civilians, uh, uh, while trying to access the country.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in California and San Diego, so I I remember a lot of the vigilant, uh, there was a lot of vigilante violence, right. Mm. Uh, that imagines that, uh, so, um, you know, like, you know, like the imagined black criminal, like the imagined terrorist, the imagined undocumented Documented person is all. They're all imagined to be traversing space in a way that they're not allowed to. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but you know, in order, uh, you know, the United States, there's this kind of. uh, I mean, technically, it's against the law to (laughs) racially discriminate um, uh, uh, based on on on, on on. you know, skin color or whatever, or race, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, there's there's all the you know, clothing becomes a very sophisticated way, or not. Um, it's it's a, a way of uh, sort of um, uh, getting around that, right? Uh, and it's actually you know, not act, not not a new phenomenon uh, in like the history of thinking about like race as a um, an invention of, of colonialism and imperialism, like. Clothing has always pay, played a very large, large part in, um, in in uh, ordering uh, humans uh, according to a hierarchy. Right. I mean, we can go to Kant and and how he talks about the different ways in which, um, uh, in the when he talks about the beautiful and the sublime and the different uh, in the national order of, of, of things. Um, you know, he he talks a lot about clothing practices, and of course that informs hmm. a lot of like colonial. Uh, ventures as well right so um you know that's off topic but um in in arizona so so you know they're trying to avoid the specter of 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 of, uh, racial profiling um uh even as they're creating a profile a racial profile right but they're doing it through the epidermalization of clothing so there's this so you know um uh, you know i think he, this this republican senator or house rep- representative says something about like you can tell by their shoes or or the quality of their clothes or mm-hmm. whatever but um uh and uh which of course uh you know and this is something i talk about in terms of um in the in the piece on 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 hoodies um and also in this piece uh is very much a uh, a part of um the rise in, in social sciences and and biological sciences that sought to order um, bodies in, in in particular ways and um, the creation of the idea of the of, of a of a profile of a criminal profile. Um, in the, in the 19th century um, and Foucault's argument that you know all these all the in this in these fields of social sciences and criminal psychiatry, which also uh, grows up around this time, um, you know it's about imagining people who have resemble the crimes they haven't yet committed mm-hmm. I think is how we put it which is um, which is how then, you know, and, the, and then the criminal profile is about creating, codifying a body of knowledge that 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 teaches us how to recognize and to mm-hmm. see what criminality looks like on, on a body, mm-hmm. uh, thus making it possible then to act against it before it acts mm-hmm. against us. Right.
0: And there's a word we did not pronounce yet, but we are, because it's so obvious, we're completely in it. It's a word of norm, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, uh, and I suppose evoking Foucault here mm-hmm. could be useful. As well in how how this is really truly how the imminent imminent uh, 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 relationship of powers are being established within a given society it's how those um, processes of norm are being are being done, and obviously the way somebody dresses is completely part of this of mm-hmm. this machine mm-hmm. um, so maybe we're gonna we're gonna move to something uh Similar yet quite different. Uh, with another article you wrote when the Green Revolution in Iran was uh, taking place right after the the second election of uh, Ahmadinejad a few years ago, which was uh, uh, which was based on uh, on the fact that uh, everybody knew that the election had been had been. Um, uh, falsified, mm-hmm. um, and how there was only a, a simulacrum, a simulacrum of, of uh, democracy. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a you wrote a piece which was, I thought, very interesting because it, uh, it was considering the the Islamic Republic of Iran in at the same level than the pre pre seventy nine situation. Uh, during during the the regime of the Shah uh, and how there was a, a, a symmetry of a symmetry that always uh, text for subjects the, the female body uh, and um, and you're talking about the veil and the veil the hijab uh, that uh, was during the Shah uh, f- forcibly forcefully unveiled and and during the islamic republic forcefully veiled so mm-hmm. it's it, i think it's it's very important to it's very important to um to recall that the veil itself is not does not does not carry anything so special about it it's it's really the enforcement of either it's the fact that it's forbidden or the fact that it's forcibly uh, uh, imposed mm-hmm. on women and maybe I, i'm gonna i'm gonna quote you here because i think you you managed to put in one sentence uh, everything that needs to be said here <laughs> uh so here i quote Further, it's important to situate this moment in which we must recognize how both forced veiling and forced unveiling operated as disciplinary state edicts, often enacted violently on female bodies by male soldiers or police, at discrete political time to instrumentally shape a feminine civic body. Do you want to elaborate, maybe?
1: (laughs) Well, um... You know, it's 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 so interesting the the debate around uh, the debate around veiling and how um, the history of of the debate around veiling has everything to do with you know the colonial encounter, right? So, um, um, uh, so much of you know uh, the the colonial encounter involves um, the colonial powers. Um, finding ways to describe the clothing of the supposedly uncivilized other as a sign of their lack or their failure, right? So, for instance, um, you know, the the Dutch in South Africa saw, you know, um, um, the South African people in their in their you know totally appropriate for the weather clothing uh as be and and you know the the sign of the, the scene of their flesh um and their skins uh, animal skins or whatever as being uh evidence of their animal closer to animal farther away from human nature and then sought to then um uh you know put them in proper dutch and british cottons
0: hmm. um Tells that to the upper East Side people <laughs> dro- we're, wearing all those animals on them. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: um, or um, or you know, in in uh, in India during the British Empire, right? The ways in which men's uh, the dhoti was, uh, uh, which is a sort of loose sarong type c- clothing item, was read as um, uh, as as also a sign of improper racialized masculinity. Um, uh, uncivilized masculinity, because of the the sort of the looseness of the clothing on the body, right, which was imagined to be un then, you know, carried all these connotations in the British mind as, of being undisciplined and feminine and so on and so forth. So, um, so the veil is also one of these items that that becomes a a a battleground between colonial anti colonial powers, um, and um, and. Uh, uh, you know, in, you know, Layla Ahmed writes about it in Egypt, and a lot of people talk about it in Iran, including uh, Minu Mo'alam, um Talk about how uh, you know colonial powers and their efforts to quote unquote modernize their uh, uh, colonial properties uh, often um, locate, located these battles on on the body of of, of, of women, or um, and so. Uh, you know, colonial powers, and also, um, you know, the, you know, administrations of the colonial administrations, and also the quote-unquote native um, um, government officials that were participating in this project, uh, were would all get you know would agree that modernization uh, involved. Uh, forcibly unveiling women in in Egypt and and, and Iran, for instance, um, and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of work, like I said, by Leila Ahmed and and Minou Al- and Huma Hudfar, for instance, that talks about you know instances of, of of police going up to women during these moments of quote unquote modernization and and forcibly tearing the veil off of them, mm-hmm. um, which we of course are now seeing in the very few instances, in a few instances in, in France with the passing mm-hmm. of the burqa, the quote-unquote burqa ban. Mm. Um, so, uh, and then of course, then after after the Islamic revolution in Iran then it, and, and the betrayal of, um, of, of, of the oh. other leftist anti-Shah forces, um, yeah,
0: that says a revolution that led to an Islamic Republic probably. Yeah, or, yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, because there were so many people involved in the anti-Shah. Yeah, it was movement. not just... Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't just uh, an, an Islamic revo- uh, Islamic forces. It was mm. all kinds of leftists and other... Uh, and often some secular forces, feminists were involved. Um, but, and people who were in
0: prison before 79 yeah. went back to prison a little bit later because they were... There a lot of people were simply against the way the the despotism was unfolding itself in Iran. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, and then, so then forced unveiling then became another way of, of disciplining, of, 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 um, of um, creating a certain kind of civic body uh, mm-hmm. for for a feminine civic body, and this is you know the the battle that plays out on women's bodies as, as symbols of modernity or tradition is, is has a very long history. So that's that's definitely a part of that ongoing um, uh, story where, um, uh, um, yeah, was it like, shaping a, a proper feminine civic body becomes a project of of a, of a, of a state regulation and discipline.
0: Mm-hmm. So and maybe it's important to mark the difference between what we were talking about before and what we're talking right now before it was about the immanent power of the norm now we're more talking about something a little bit more transcendental and something coming from the outside mm-hmm. and therefore that's why we're talking about uh, uh ne- neo mm-hmm. and uh and uh, there's there's the two more examples that you yet that you uh, have been uh, writing about uh uh, whether it's in your book, The Gift of Freedom, or in a in an article called uh, the pa- the Bio Power of Beauty, mm-hmm. in which you tell the story of something I was absolutely not familiar with, which is <laughs> the fact that uh, um, was it an American initiative? yes, yeah, that was yeah. an American initiative. An American initiative led to the to the establishment of a beauty institute in uh, in Kabul and um, explaining how uh, again from the outside how beauty bringing beauty and obviously with uh, all the cultural subjectivity (laughs) carried in this work (laughs) uh, how how the beauty is therefore the beauty as seen is in america in america uh was going to empower the the afghan afghan women Uh, can, can you maybe tell us this story
1: yeah. Um so <laughs> so I remember <laughs> I ran I ran across this story about uh uh this n- non-governmental organization called Beauty Without Borders uh which after the US invasion of Afghanistan um uh sought to then uh open a beauty school to quote unquote uh teach Afghan women the art and commerce of beauty. Mm. Um um so, uh, so, so, so uh, they managed to, you know, get all kinds of donations from U.S. like beauty industry giants, um, uh, and, uh, including of materials and cash to to run this beauty and school. products. And products, little. yes, because it was definitely about you know finding new consumers, mm-hmm. right? Which is which is a, a, a colonial project, right, to, to um, inculcate uh, cl- colonized peoples into a new, uh, as, a, as new consumer markets. <laughs>
0: well, that's very much a primal reason of colonialism, yes. right? So it was a whole economic aspect of it.
1: Yes, okay. yes. So like in the South Africa example, I, I mentioned it was all about getting people to buy Dutch and British cotton. Um, so so uh, it was, so yeah, so they went to to Afghanistan and to, to open this beauty school and there there was all these, you know, in the in, and it was this fascinating um, uh, uh, convergence of um, of this language of women's rights as human rights with uh, the you know with the United States as an imperial uh, as a liberal imperial power um granting to these women not only the gift of freedom, but that you know the gift of freedom also carried with it a particular kind of promise of beauty right So there was there was all these stir- stories circulating about how like these women really wanted beauty and and you know they had they had beauty salons that they ran in secret uh, during the Taliban years and they just were you know so the desire, for beauty was always there signaling their like love of humanity and life and all the other stuff but they were doing it wrong right they weren't you know they, they they didn't have the right products they didn't have the right style and and they were not like modern enough uh you know under the taliban so then this uh NGO this non-profit and NGO came in beauty without borders uh to then teach them um how to be um modern and beautiful at mm. the same
0: time. So. And I was actually very interested in uh, how you question the very name of their, of the NGO, mm-hmm. like, uh, Beauty Without Borders, which mm-hmm. is, uh, which is based on their, on the French NGO, Médecins, Médecins Sans Frontières, doctor, Doctors Without Borders, uh, that, and you were, you were, and there's been a lot of other uh, uh, organization created like that, there's, yeah. there's an architect without borders and... And it, it's interesting, <laughs> I was very interested to see how you say, well, yeah, it is beauty without border, which is like, there's no more respect for the border and mm-hmm. therefore the identity of their, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, imperialism, <laughs> imperialism kind of annihilates the borders mm-hmm. that uh, that are ev- evoked here. And, um, and
1: it also, you know, I mean, also all the, it also evokes how humanitarianism is mm-hmm. completely enmeshed in imperial projects. Yeah. yeah. That also imagine there being no borders, <laughs> right?
0: And um, and I, I found the question of beauty uh, as as um, uh, uh, introduced by by you very interesting because that's that's not so much uh, or, or maybe I'm just not familiar with the work, but uh, that's that's not a word we use so much in our in a kind of intellectual context where. Um, because there is there is an understanding that there is a, a subjectivity to it but uh in that case it's it's it is it is uh, the subjectivity is ignored and there, there, uh, there normative uh question of beauty is imposed is imposed on other territories but I I'd, li- I'd like to quote you about that because uh in your text there was something uh, you said, um, quoting Foucault, as uh, saying to include beauty as a question of techniques for maximi- maximizing life, and and uh, right after you say that is to say that beauty as a discourse and concern about the vitality of the be- of the body, but also of the soul, can and does become an important side of signification, power, and knowledge about how to live, and uh, that is very much their. their the definition of uh, biopolitics, mm-hmm. as, Foucault, as Foucault created it, and um, and uh, I think that's something you develop as well in your books, or the, the gift of freedom.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a part of my book. Um, uh, one of the one of the chapters in my book is talking about um, the photograph of the little girl who was burned by napalm mm-hmm. during the war uh, that came out in 1972. Um, that became like the fam- uh, you know the most one of the most famous photos during the Vietnam from war. the Vietnam war, yeah. war right um, and um, uh, and so that kind of image of like this kind of like image that is often imagined to uh, you know encapsulate this sort of stark horror of war you know circulates as, as a sort of condemnation of war but um, uh, there's uh, there's I, I read a few of these biographical works about her that then sort of, um, that, that, you know, in this effort to kind of restore subjectivity and personhood to the little girl in the photograph, tell a story about her desire for beauty um, and how that is what redeems her, right? So she has a desire for beauty and love um, um, uh, that gets... Um, that becomes a part of the story of her redemption and then her eventual uh, and her desire for the united States and she ends up um, managing to uh, uh, ask for and receive asylum in Canada when she 's escaping on her honeymoon um, where she was um, supposed to go to honeymoon in in Moscow but she ends up in Canada um, on a on a stopover and 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 ask for and receive asylum so um but throughout the, the uh, multiple biographies of her, uh, on television, in magazines, and, and the uh, a biography that's written uh, about her called The Girl in the Photo, um, one of the threads that um, follows um, throughout all of them is her, how her desire to live is about her desire for normative gendered beauty, to be recognized as beautiful and to be able to have like heterosexual love. Right, that people that 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 these two things are together signal for her um, um, how best to to be alive. In the so so th- that's sort of like the taking off point for um, that I, that informs the second project I'm going to think about in mm-hmm. terms of like the promise of beauty, which you know of course is is very much in the the piece on on beauty without borders as mm-hmm. well. Right, this this idea that all these Afghan women you know, held on for all these years to the, this promise of beauty as, as a, as a, as a way to, um, um, uh, hold on to like the promise of like a, a, a better life,
0: mm-hmm. right? And there, there, um, the little girl from Vietnam is also, I suppose, very representative in how, um, uh, an individual story might be considered only if there is this, uh, uh, Spectacle involved in mm-hmm. in that case uh, the photograph, right? Mm-hmm. Because obviously, if she was the only one who had to suffer from napalm during the no more. Yeah, uh, that would have been uh, that that would have been different from yeah. what what actually happened, which which uh, obviously concerned. uh Oh, uh, it uh, was it was a. Uh, Thousands of uh, individuals with mm-hmm. uh, with a similar uh, similar tragedies that were not considered by the empire because yes. there was not a, a regime of visibility that were showing them. Yes. Um, and um, so you ne- you just say your next book will be the, the promise of beauty. Yes. I see. You're writing it right now.
1: I'm trying to write it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, So we, we still have a little bit of time, and I uh, there, there won't be much transition here. But um, maybe I would like to talk about some things that I'm particularly interested in, which is uh, the potential similarity similarities within with um, between uh, clothing and the other object of design, whether it's it's industrial design or architecture or. Um, so there is a clear difference between both which is that one, one the the clothes are part of what you call the epi- epidermisization of the public body um and and, and it is it is a, a sort of uh, additional skin that reveals uh a certain amount of uh, that that not reveals but that maybe a call for a certain amount of of uh, cultural and social um uh, signifiers but there is also something and uh because because clothing is a piece of design that acts on the body there is also something that is uh, very comparable to the to the other object of design and, uh, and our architecture being one which is the actual power of clothing on the body and um and uh, i uh, i was interested recently by uh um, a piece of clothing like the, the corset uh, so that was being being uh, uh worn uh very much in the in the ro- european royal courts in uh, in the eighteenth eighteenth century uh, especially in france and um how this corset is acting very much so on the female body to force uh to enforce uh uh, a silhouette that is um uh that correspond to the male uh the male idea of what a, a woman should look like and uh and uh and it's not it's not something temporary the the corset is actually acting on the body in such a way that it creates uh days after days after days this silhouette that uh that um that is recognized at a social social level as the the way uh, somebody should look like, and um, and um, uh, I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe maybe you 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 want you want to react to that and to this to this particular piece of clothing but that's uh there's there's some others as well that that it carries a certain operativity on the body that uh is uh, is very far from natural
1: yeah well you know one of the things i i'm i'm you know i deal with when i i talk about clothing practices um is is the you know people always bring up especially in the sort of, like, feminist theories, feminist histories of, of clothing practices and fashion, people bring up the corset, people bring up, like, high heels, right, as another instance of a, of a, of a piece of, um, you know, clothing or whatever that, that actually sh- sh- reshapes the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, wh- while I don't believe in a natural body, I think, you know, I don't necessarily have anything against modifying the body, um, so I'm I'm not, you know, necessarily imagining that there's a natural body mm-hmm. that is the best body. Um, but I am interested in which kinds of um, bodies get disciplined and regulated, um, uh, whether through discourse, but also in actual practice through design elements. Such as the corset or the high heel, uh, and and why and and when, right? So, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about the corset um, was thinking about um, you know the the, de- the one of the debates that comes up all the time in my fashion my politics of fashion class is that mm-hmm. people want to talk about um, foot binding Chinese foot binding they want to talk about that as like an example of a barbaric practice, but then uh, you know and. I find analogies oftentimes to be very faulty, and I but I use them sometimes just as a shorthand in my class. But I talk about you know well what about high heels, which also force your foot into a particular kind of shape that um, uh, that that transform how you you carry your 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 alignment of your spine Mm -hmm. with your your hips and. and the kinds of you know all kinds of physical problems that uh, that come from wearing from wearing heels. Right? Mm. Why do why do we not talk about that as a kind of um, uh, dis- like disciplinary practice that uh, is actively um, reshaping our bodies um, um, in sometimes unhealthy ways? Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, and
0: I'm very glad you just say the word unhealthy because mm-hmm. I think that we can we can totally agree on the fact that there is no natural body Mm -hmm. and therefore any form of modification Mm -hmm. would be necessarily uh, uh, bad or or, uh, counter-moral or uh, Mm -hmm. anything we want. But there is indeed, uh, uh, if we look at the vitality of Mm -hmm. the body, there is uh, pretty much everything we do is either having uh, something in favor of this vitality or something... uh, Against this mm-hmm. vitality, which uh, I, usu- I usually think of, of uh, uh, Xavier Bichas' uh, 1800 definition of life as the set the set of uh, functions that resist to death. So mm-hmm. it's no longer life is no longer the process. It's it's death that is a process. It's mm-hmm. like death is not an event. Death is at work always, mm-hmm. and and therefore there are practices and that. Either accelerates the death process or slow slow it, and mm-hmm. clearly something like the corset in 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 the in the, the mm-hmm. way the way it modifies the body for uh, and the the internal organs and mm-hmm. everything is um, is accelerating the death process, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and it's, it's it's interesting to see how how clothing is very much involved within this uh, acceleration or deceleration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, do I get to conclude? <laughs> all right. Well, Mimi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, and uh, and uh, as I said, uh, all the links that we've been talking about will be available near the little podcast on the website. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs>